Well, good morning, Chapel family. It is a joy to be a part of a church that has a heart for missions. Our God does. He has a heart for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that will only happen when we are out sharing the gospel, uh, not only with our neighbors here, but also around the world. And so it's a blessing to be a part of the ministry of folks like Bruce and Irene working in Greece. I've known Bruce since before he went over to Greece. He's a dear man of God who has a heart for folks. He's a gifted evangelist and a tireless worker. And uh, so I think as we come to, to our study this morning, let's join in prayer uh, for them as well. So, Father, we thank you for uh, the blessing of partnering and sharing in the ministry of all of our missionary partners, but this morning especially as we've been reminded of the work of the Maccatees and uh, Greece is such a needy place for the gospel. So very few believers in Christ, not only are they working among the Greek people, but also the, the scores of refugees that are flooding through Greece from war-torn Middle Eastern countries. And there have been significant work done with these refugees in the last number of years. As Bruce mentioned, even today, while many of the large-scale ministries have been had to stop as uh, things have been shut down, he's been able to go deep with with fewer numbers and and of these uh, seven Afghans and two Iranians he mentioned in the video. So thankful for the opportunity to share the gospel. We pray it would take root in the hearts of these men, as have so many others before, and many of them have gone on to serve to reach their own people both in Greece and in Europe and some even going back to their homelands. So, Father, we pray that you will multiply the ministry of Bruce and Irene and and uh, Grace and Emily and that you would bless them. I think also this morning of um, of our youth director, Eli, his wife, Ashley, as uh, Ashley's been undergoing all this week chemo treatments, preparing for a bone marrow transplant tomorrow. Father, we pray your hand of grace upon them. We pray for your hand of protection and for healing for Ashley. And Father, that you would be especially near to them, give them comfort and strength. May you be honored in everything and may you give them opportunities as well to point people to Christ in and through all of these things and the time in the hospital. Now, Father, as we come to your word, we do ask that you would open it to us. Help us to understand it and help it not to be just head knowledge, but things that are translated into our lives, into our trust of you, our love for you, and our service uh, for you as well. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a building is only as stable, it's only as strong as its foundation. This one has had a problem. You know, the famous Leaning Tower of Pizza, been there for years. They actually could straighten it out, but they don't because it's such a good tourist attraction and nobody wants to come see the straight Tower of Pizza. But it happened because it was built on a poor foundation is what caused it to lean. Many years ago, Janet and I set out to build a house uh, over here in Lake St. Louis, and we were 
We bought a lot. We made plans. We were finally ready to begin. And the day came when the equipment showed up and the excavator began digging. He dug down a couple of feet and the soil got wet. And he said, no problem. We just have to go deeper. We'll get under this. And he kept digging with his with his bulldozer more and more and more. And the hole got deeper and deeper. And eventually the bulldozer was completely stuck in this big pit where our house was supposed to be. And he literally could not get it out and it began to rain. And um, we discovered that at that time that right underneath our property there was this underground stream that ran right through it. And so about... Uh, at that time, about $10,000 and many studies and lots of rock and concrete, we had a foundation that we built a very a house that would not move. It was stable because it was built on bedrock. We, as a church, do not have a foundation that is built on concrete and steel and stones. Because you see, the church is actually not a building. This building is built on concrete, but that's not the church. The church is people. And the foundation of a church is not stones and concrete. The foundation of a church is what we believe. And the chapel is 50 years old this year. We began last week a study looking at our foundation, what we as a church have agreed some 40 years ago or so as our foundation, our statement of faith. We thought it appropriate in these days of our anniversary to go back and look once again at the statement of faith, to examine the foundation and to check it out and make sure that indeed it is a stable, a firm foundation. Last week we looked at the first statement of faith, which has to do with the Word of God. And and it is that our uh, what we believe, the foundation for our faith and practice is the Word of God. And today we turn to the second of the seven statements of faith that are in our chapel doctrinal statement or statement of faith. And it is this. Would you read it together with me? Can you see that? Okay, let's read together. The living, eternal, and true God is one, made known in the Trinity... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The living, eternal, true God is one. Last week we talked about while the, while the creation screams out to us, the very existence of a world that is, and a universe that is ordered, that is orderly, where there is complexity, where there is beauty, all screams to the fact that there is a Creator. There is one who made it. It is foolishness and folly to look at it all and to say it just happened. That there was some explosion and nothing became everything. And the solar systems were formed and the planets were formed and this planet was formed just in the right spot, just close enough to the sun but not too far away where we have... Uh, we have the right amount of gravity and we have atmosphere and we have water and we have all these wonderful things. And then one day some lightning struck a pool of water where there happened to be a little bit of stuff and that stuff got 
when it got zapped, it formed amino acids, and amino acids came to form proteins, and proteins came together to form a cell, and that cell became life. And from that little bit of life came all the life that we see around us today. That takes so much faith to believe the impossible, because it is mathematically impossible. The creation screams there is a creator. But we talked last week how it is impossible for us to know and to understand the Creator from the creation. We can see that He is here, and as Romans chapter 1 says, that we can see His eternal power and His glory in the creation, but we don't know what He is like, who He is, and we cannot come to know Him unless He reveals Himself to us. And that is what God has done. He has revealed Himself to us, and we have that revelation here in His Word, the Bible. And so today, as we come to look at truth about God, we have to come to His Word and see what does God have to say about Himself. When we open our Bible to the very first, first page of really the book, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and we find there These words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There we find our origins. We are here because there is a creator. And he has created us. He has created the world. He's created everything in it. He's created the universe. Everything created by God. We turn to the end of the book. We get to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, to the next to last chapter. In Revelation chapter 21, we find down in verse 6 where it says, I am, this is God speaking, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He goes on, the beginning and the end. And there it affirms that not only do we find our beginning with God, back in Genesis 1, our origins, we also have the ending. Our eternal destiny lies in the hands of the Creator God. And we have in the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, we have a description there of heaven, the destiny of those who receive God's mercy, our eternal dwelling, the picture of our eternal life with Him forever is there in these last chapters. We also have in these last chapters a description of hell, the lake of fire, the destiny for those, the Bible says, who refuse Him. So that's the beginning and that's the end. And everything in the middle between the beginning and the end of the Scriptures is the story of human history. The story of us, and it tells us not only about us, it tells us about God. It's the story of God's interaction with man. It tells us not only who we are and how we got here, it teaches us about right and wrong. It teaches us about God. It teaches about our relationship with Him. It teaches us and instructs us about God's provision to rescue us from our sin and to give us life, an eternal life, through Jesus Christ. All of that is here as the story unfolds through human history and through the pages of Scripture. 
So here in the Bible, what do we learn about God? Obviously, that's not a question that I'm going to be fully able to answer in the 30 minutes we have here this morning. But I do want to call our attention to just 10 of the characteristics, 10 of the attributes of God that we find in the Scriptures. There are plenty more, but in this abbreviated list, I hope we'll get a taste that maybe make you want to go look at more and study more on these. We've already seen that God is creator in Genesis 1, but we also find in, in Deuteronomy 6 and in other places that God is one. Not, God is not one of many gods. That is, that is uh, polytheism. God is not in everything. God is not, you know, one with the universe and the universe is one with God. And, and that, that's pantheism, that God is in everything. God is not in his creation. He made it. But we find in the scripture, Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or literally, the Lord is one Lord. There is one God and only one. That's the great Shema. Yahweh, or Jehovah is his name, the Lord. He is the one and only God. A second thing we learn about God is that God is not only one God, he is eternal. He is infinite. He is without beginning. He is without end. There was never a time when God did not exist. He had no beginning. God is outside of time. He has no end and he, he sees the future as clearly as the present. God is not bound by time as we are. In fact, I would say that God created time when he created the universe and created us. He created time. He exists outside of that dimension. Isaiah 44, verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Again, God is the beginning and He is the end of all that we know of time. He is eternal. And again, it affirms that He is the one and only God. God is also, not, not just is there one God, and not only is He eternal, but also God is omniscient. Big fancy word that means He knows everything. He knows every detail. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He, God, determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding has no measure. There is not a test you can give him to find out how much God knows because he knows everything. It's beyond measure. He knows everything from the, the stars, how many there are, and he knows the names of them all. To He knows every hair on our head, how many they are. Matthew chapter 10 says that. He knows every hair on our head. For some of us, it's a little easier to count as every day goes by. But there are more of us. And God knows them all. There's nothing He does not know. Every detail. God is not only omniscient, He is omnipotent. I remember as a young guy growing up in church, when you learned these words, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, man, you'd learn something. You knew big names, big words that other people didn't know. 
Well, they're good words. Omnipotent means that God is all-powerful. He has all power. Jeremiah 32, verse 27, God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? God is able to do anything. He is the creator of all. He is also the sustainer of all. He has the power to create, the power to sustain. He has the power, therefore, by the way, to care for you and me. Sometimes aren't you tempted to think, man, my problems are just so big. There are no solutions. You know, there's no answers. God is bigger than your problems. I don't care how big they are. God is omnipotent. He can do anything. He can care for us. God is also sovereign. That word means that He is the chief, the highest in position. He is the chief and the highest in power as well. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10. Remember the former things of old, God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Those verses, by the way, affirm everything we've already said. They they affirm that God is one God, that He is eternal, that He is omniscient, He knows everything, He's omnipotent, He can do anything, and He is sovereign. In other words, whatever He says goes. Whatever He wants to do, He will finish, He will do. No one, no thing can thwart God, can stop God, from whatever it is he intends to do. That is sovereignty. God is also, another omni word, God is omnipresent. means he is everywhere. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? There's good news there. If you belong to God, if you are his You can depend upon the fact that there is nowhere where you are out of His care. There is nowhere where you are on your own. He is always with you, even as Jesus promised in Matthew 28, even as God promised in Joshua, I am with you wherever you go. We can depend upon that. It's also bad news if you're trying to run from God. There's nowhere you can run, nowhere you can hide. Jonah, you remember, found that out. Tried to go hide in Spain, tried to catch a ship and ended up in a fish and ended up where God put him right back where he wanted him to be. You can't run from God. God is omnipresent. He is also holy. means God is untouched. He is unstained by evil. Psalm 99 verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Holy, by the way, is more than just the absence of sin. It's more than just you know, not being stained or touched by sin. In very much the same way as health is not just being not sick. Health is being well. There's a positive quality to health. And so it is with holiness. Holiness is not just not what a God who doesn't sin. He's a God who has a positive aspect of holiness and rightness. Matter of fact, that's our next quality of God. God is righteous. He is righteous. Usually that word is tied to His justice. Those actually can be they're from the same root word. God is righteous and just. 
Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God is right in everything that He is. God is right in everything that He does. And we tie that with His justice because what that means is God is is also right in how He judges wrong. God is a God of justice. He is a God of fairness and what is right. It means, by the way, that God is equitable. That God will not treat this person one way and treat another person another way and treat them unfairly because I like you, I don't like you. Because you're good looking and you're not. You know, because you're rich and you're not. That's the way that things work in our world. That's not with God. The Bible says He is not a respecter of person. The Bible says that God's rightness, though, again, requires full justice tied together. The next character quality is important, and fortunately in Scripture, this is often paired with God's righteousness and justice, even as the verse I read a moment ago. We find that God is gracious and merciful, and He is loving. Psalm 116, verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Lastly, in our list, but not in God's wonderful qualities, we could go on and on, but God is immutable. Most of you, if you're thinking, what in the world is that word, immutable? What it means simply is God does not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. There's good news in the fact that God is immutable. The fact that God does not change. What that means is that God will never renege on a promise. He will never fail to keep His Word. And the good news for the children of Jacob, the children of Israel there, for the Israelites is that... (laughs) I don't break my word, and that's why you're still here. You recall, they still they failed so many times, and God says, you aren't consumed because I made a promise. I made a promise. It's good news for us in these things. God never fails to keep a promise. He's made promises to us. God is merciful and gracious. God is always here. So many things we can look at and we can read these wonderful truths and we can appreciate them and and I hope you will. I hope that you'll go back and think about these. They're good, good news here. However, we read some of these and we realize that these can also be troubling. If, you see, God is omniscient, it means He knows everything. Everything, even the hidden things in our lives. Nothing in your life or mine is hidden from God. Even the things we've forgotten, God hasn't forgotten. Everything is known and nothing is forgotten. That can be kind of bad news. And, And if God is absolutely holy and just, as we read, God is absolutely holy without sin. He is absolutely right. And He also is absolutely just and demands absolute justice. And that's good news because every atrocity, 
Every horrible crime must get its due. And we all, yeah! That also means, though, that every wrong, even every small wrong, even every minor sin, even every wrong thought must get its due penalty as well. And you say, that's bad news, especially when paired with the fact that God knows everything. He's omniscient. And then we put that with the fact that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere and there's nowhere we can hide. And we got a big problem, don't we? Maybe you don't. I do. We all do. David understood that. So David, when he contemplated these things, David prays in Psalm 143. He prays to God and says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. He nails it on the head right there. There is not a righteous person on earth. In the video, Bruce was talking with those um, Afghan and Iranian men. And some of them were saying, you know, we're, we're not born sinners. And he said, well, wait a minute. You know, you take a seed here and you put the seed in the ground. If it's a peach seed and you put it in the ground, you don't get a pear tree, do you? If you put an olive in the ground, you don't get an apple tree. You get an olive tree. He says, the Bible says that every one of us are descended from Adam. Adam was a sinner, and through one man, sin passed to all men, and death passed to all men because every one of us is a sinner. You see, there's a righteous and holy God who knows everything and is everywhere, and He must exact justice. And the Bible says we are all sinners, Romans 3.23. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Death, by the way, in that verse is juxtaposed, is put across from eternal life. And so the death he's talking about is not just physical death. It is, it is spiritual death. It is eternal death. It is hell. That's what every sin deserves. And we go, this is bad news. Thankfully, we also see in this list, that list, that God is gracious. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is kind. So we say there's hope here maybe. There's also another problem. Because God is, as our thing says here, and we didn't get to this attribute of God, God is true. That means that God can have no conflict between anything in Him. No internal conflict. God must be true to every one of His attributes. So God is Merciful and kind, but that cannot negate God's justice. He is gracious and compassionate, but that cannot, he cannot ignore his justice. And his absolute justice requires that sin be paid for. The penalty of sin is death and hell. And it only takes one sin to make a sinner, and not a one of us just has one sin. We've got millions of them. We're in horrible shape, but God's mercy and compassion, God determined and planned to do something that only He could do, that God could satisfy His justice by sacrificing Himself in our place, paying the debt of our sin. 
God determined to do that so that you and I could have forgiveness and eternal life. That is an astounding truth that unfolds through the pages of Scripture. And we find it come to fruition as the plan is enacted in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to see more of that next week. It's an astounding truth that God did that. The old hymn writer put it so well. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? All of this truth, you see, is wrapped up in the character and the nature of God. Our salvation is why the Easter celebration is such a great celebration. That's why it's so big, so huge for us. Because on Friday, Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for our sin on the cross. There God put all the wrath, all of the, of the just punishment of our sin went upon Him. Then on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, assuring the sins are forgiven, the payment is made, and we have a future in heaven. We just celebrated that two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, after church, we went home all the family was over, the grandkids were over, and we were serving up dinner, and I'm sitting down, and my, one of my granddaughters, I won't name which one, walks up, and she says, Papa, I've got a question. She said, Papa, so God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, right? And God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, right? Yeah. And we say Jesus is God, right? Yeah. So, Papa, how can God the Father be God and Jesus be God? We've got a budding theologian coming up. Smart little cookie. Seven years old. See, her simple question was far from simple. And I realized at that moment I was over my head in that conversation. Even as I am over my head now. Because you see, it brings us right to the second half of our statement of faith here. The living, eternal, true God is one. And we all go, got it. And then we read on, made known in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my granddaughter says, how? Do you ever do that? Okay, I do. We're going to talk about it right now. Some things to notice. First of all, we notice as we come to the Scriptures, because remember, this is our statement of faith. This is our basis for our faith. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus, matter of fact, I will say, is God. And He claimed to be God. John chapter 10, verse 30, one example. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, the apostles declared that He is God. The apostle John, for example, says... In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, 
And without Him, nothing was made or not anything was made that has been made. First of all, in the context, it's very clear as you read the chapter, the Word is talking about Jesus. And so what it says is that Jesus, in the beginning, was the Word. And in the beginning, He was with God. And just in case we didn't get it, He was he was God and He was with God in the beginning. And all things were made through Him. Jesus was with God, but He's separate from God. He's always been God. He was with God in the very beginning. And He is Creator. We saw in Genesis 1.1, God is Creator. We saw here Jesus is also Creator. Hmm. And our brains start to smoke a little bit. We're going to talk more about that next week, or we're going to see more about that next week, so I'm going to stop there. We're going to talk about Jesus all next week. But we also find in the Bible, in addition to that, that both Jesus and the apostles talk about the Holy Spirit as God. They talk about the Holy Spirit as a person who is distinct from God the Father and distinct from God the Son, Jesus, but who is also God, but He's a person with intellect and with will and with emotion. So He is not a force, not a power. He is a person. And we're not going to go where you, and dig through all that this morning, but I will challenge you. You can go to John chapter 14, 15, 16, where Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples the night before the crucifixion. He's talking there with them. And He talks a lot about the Father and about the Spirit and about Himself. And we see that they are all connected. We see that Jesus is going to pray to the Father to send the Holy Spirit. The Father is going to send the Spirit, but Jesus says He's going to send the Spirit. Because Jesus and the Father are one. And we also see that the Spirit is a person. Well, look at this. In this verse, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, again, it ties Jesus and the Father together, He will teach you all things. Notice that. He will teach you all things. Not it. Again, it's not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And I will stop there. Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. We're going to see more about the Holy Spirit in two weeks. Okay, so that's why I stopped there. So we take all of that together, and there's two critical truths we have to grasp from Scripture. The first is this, that God is one God. Not many gods. He's one God. He's a personal God. He's the living God. He's all those things that we saw. But we also learn in the New Testament that Oh, by the way, and it's affirmed in the New Testament, just to make sure, in case you don't think it's just Old Testament, it's New Testament. First Timothy makes it clear. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God. Jesus as well made it clear. He affirmed the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. But we also learn in the New Testament that the Father is God, and Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Not only are they all three God, each one is distinct from the other. They are not just all mixed up into this, this, this mess. Each one is distinct. We see that, for example, in a benediction that I often use here at the chapel. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
They are all three right there together, but they are all three distinct. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each distinct. They are also each distinctly God, but yet they are one, because we don't deny that. They are one, but they are all God concurrently. So you can't say that, well, God the Father is God here in the Old Testament, and then Jesus was God when He was our Savior and when He was on earth, and then the Holy Spirit is God afterwards, and in this day and time in the period of the church, the Holy Spirit is God. And so it's one God who takes different forms or different modes over time. That doesn't pan with Scripture. Just one example of many we could give and when, at Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You have right there God the Father in heaven, God the Spirit coming down as a dove, God the Son there in the water, coming up from the baptism, all three in the same place, as it were, at the same time. All three distinct at one instance. But there are cults and groups who try to say that God is one God who took different, takes different forms. That's not it at all. Also, each one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equal. They are equally God. Equally, fully God. Again, other examples we could do, but we use this, Matthew 28, 19, the, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You say, where is it there? We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but notice it says one name. It doesn't say in the names, it's one name. Thereby putting them all on the same plane, all equal. They are all equal under one name. They are also three there in one name. Is your brain smoking yet? Okay, lots of stuff. That is where we get, by the way, the, the word Trinity. It's three in one. A better word actually is triunity. Triunity, three in one, three united in one. One God, three persons. So this was startling. Startling information as God revealed this. But you might ask, wait a minute. So is the New Testament contradicting the Old Testament? Can we find any of that in the Old Testament? And the answer is, there's nothing about the Trinity. In the, by the way, that word Trinity is not in the Bible at all. That's just our best attempt as frail humans to try to explain what God has said. That there is one God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit. Son is God and the Spirit is God. But does the Old Testament back that up? Well, the Old Testament never talks about that there are three gods, three persons in one God. But there are some hints. Just very quickly, Genesis chapter 1. We were there a few moments ago. We read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God, and it's used all the way through the creation account, is the word Elohim. 
Elohim, God. Interesting thing is it's talking about God singular, but it uses the word Elohim is plural. I was always kind of curious. Why is that plural? Notice as well in verse 2 it says, The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. I go, Elohim is God. Who's the Spirit of God? Why just change it right there? It's just a little hint. I see God is a good author. A good author always puts little tidbits here and then reveals things as you go along. God's a great author. He's a masterful author. We go on, we get down, and we get down into verse, into verse 26, and God says, let us make man in our image. And we go, who is this we? Who is this us? Is God talking to the angels? No, because we were created. It goes on to say, next verse, we were created in God's image, not in the image of angels. So he's the us. The us is God. Matter of fact, the next verse, it's, it says, let us create man in our image after our likeness. And then the next verse, it's, God created man in his singular own image. In the image of God, he, singular, created them. It moved right from the plural pronouns to the singular pronouns. See, God just put the little hints there so we can look back later and go, Oh, ooh. oh. As well, all the way along, we get into the book of Genesis, later in the book, chapter 18, where the, the angel of the Lord appears to Abram. Chapter 22, the angel of the Lord appears to Abram. And there the angel of the Lord is identified as Jehovah or Yahweh. And yet he's distinct from Yahweh. Who is this? By the way, I think it's Jesus Christ, the Son, pre-incarnate. That, that's our trying to think, hmm. The hint is there. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. We usually go there at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it goes on to say, His name will be Mighty God. The one he's talking about, by the way, is the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Messiah is going to be called the Mighty God. And the next word in the list of names is Everlasting Father. We know the Messiah is Jesus. And we know that squares with what we find out. Jesus is God. Well, Isaiah said it way back there in Isaiah 6. He will be mighty God, the everlasting Father. Just one more. You get into the, toward the end of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. God again is speaking about the Messiah. And He calls Him, this word, He calls Him my associate or my fellow. doesn't mean a, a subordinate. doesn't mean an employee. It's talking about an equal. God speaking to the Messiah says He is my equal. He is God. So you see, the hints were there all through the Old Testament. But God revealed it plainly in the New Testament. One God, three persons. But from the beginning as Christians, we have struggled to put those two truths together, even as you probably do today and even as I do, and as I struggle to try to explain it to my granddaughter. It's difficult and so we adopted, we created that word trinity or triunity to explain it. An early Christian creed put it this way. It says, and the universal Christian faith is this, that we worship one God in trinity and trinity in unity. Neither confounding, that means confusing the persons, nor dividing the substance. For there 
is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. He's all one. But the Godhead of the Father, excuse me, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. That's from a larger creed, the Athanasian Creed, which really is a very good summation of this doctrine as best as we can. The reality is none of us can fully grab it. None of us can fully understand it. But these truths, these two truths are essential to our faith. One person rightly said, try to explain it and you will lose your mind. But try to deny it and you will lose your soul. We believe it because God says it is true. So, as we wrap it up, what do we do with all this? Just a couple of quick things. First, this should cause us to be in awe of God. He's beyond our understanding. Again, my answer to my granddaughter was, you know, I tried to explain a little bit and just go, well, the reality is, I don't understand it. But I believe it because God said it. It's true. And I believe it because God is bigger than I can understand. And that doesn't cause me any, you know, any stress at all. You see, the reality is, if God, if my small, puny, you know, hindered mind, corrupted mind, could understand God, he wouldn't be much of a God. So let us marvel and worship him. That also should make us realize that he deserves everything we are and everything we we have. For that God sacrificed himself for us. And then another practical thing. I encourage you to take time to meditate. That means to think about the character of God. Some of these things we mentioned today and looked at today in brief, there's more. And go and study and look at who God is. You see, are you fearful? Do you worry and do you fret? Realize you serve a sovereign God. A powerful God. The Almighty. You can trust. You can rest in Him. Again, there's not a problem He can't solve. Not a situation that's too big. Are you worried about what's coming tomorrow or next week or next month? We have a God who knows the future. Matter of fact, who, who controls the future. Trust Him. Rest in Him. Are you lonely? Are you ever just so terribly lonely? We have a God who is everywhere and who has promised to be with you, to never leave you, to never forsake you. You're never alone. That's why the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I know of nothing that can so comfort the soul or so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief or so speak peace to the words of trial as a devout musing, thinking upon the subject of the Godhead. May that encourage us to look at Him more this week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We've talked about some pretty heavy stuff, some pretty heady stuff. But it's my desire, as it's your intention with, this, with your word, 
that none of this is just theological stuff that we tuck away in file drawers and forget, but rather that it becomes realized in our lives to understand who you are, the Almighty, the Sovereign, the Holy, the, the Righteous, and the Merciful God. Father, may there not be a person here who, who hears all this and fails to put their trust in You, their trust in Jesus as their Savior, and come to experience the new life now and the eternal life forever that You have designed us for. And then, Father, may we all find rest and peace and comfort and strength and encouragement as we think more about who You are. Thank You for being the great and the mighty and the loving God. To Your glory we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.